Hello, everybody. So good to see you. We are finishing up just a two-week series about relationships we're calling Matched. And uh, we realized that there are so many of us in the room in different places in life. In America today, we've had a new phenomenon where just about 50% of the American population is single. So wherever you're at, I think what we're talking about is going to help in terms of relationships. Relationships. Relationships are difficult. Anybody figured that out? Um, they can be painful, they're awkward, and I'm grateful that apparently thousands of years ago, relationships were hard for people as well, and the Bible talks extensively about relationships. So today we're going to look at a passage from Philippians chapter 2, one of the more challenging passages, I think, in the whole New Testament. When you, when you read it and try to apply it, it uh, will be an incredible challenge, but could also change your life change your relationships. Uh, Last week, we looked at a passage where Jesus invites people to love each other the way he loved them. And what was the way he loved people? It was selfless. We looked at a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And just in review, we, we, we focus on these thoughts. First, falling in love requires a pulse. Okay? So if, yep, I can fall in love. Staying in love requires a plan, okay? So anybody can fall in love. In fact, there are 1,500 organizations in the United States of America that will help you to fall in love. They're matchmaking sites, right? And I've had some great stories. I had stories of some people that came to the church and um, met each other online, found out that they both came to the church. They just went to different services, and I got to do their wedding. It was really fun. They just like, I go... Saturday night, and he goes Sunday, and we never met each other. So, but falling in love, that's not the hard part. It's staying in love. That requires a plan. You have to be thoughtful. It's not going to happen naturally. Our drift will always be towards separation, tension, division. It takes a plan. So falling in love requires a pulse. Staying in love requires a plan. Love isn't an emotion. It's an action. Love is not an emotion. Culturally, we define love as an emotion, something you feel. Last week, we looked at this idea that love is not a noun. It's not a state of existence. It's not something you fall into. But the Bible over and over in multiple ways says love is actually a verb. It's something you do day after day. So love is not an an emotion. It is an action. And thirdly, success in marriage isn't about finding the right person. Instead, it's about being the right person. Okay, so compatibility, I get it. I think that's important. But ultimately, to be successful in relationships, it's not about just finding the right person. It's about me being the right person. It's about me being transformed. It's about a renewal in my thinking. It's about a new understanding what love is. Now, in this passage, Paul is going to describe the love of Jesus. You've probably heard this phrase, wherever you're at in your own spiritual journey, um, maybe, maybe you're not sure what you believe, so happy you're here, this is a safe place to explore, but you've seen a bumper sticker, you've had somebody tell you that God loves you. And you think, well, that sounds nice, but what does that mean? For some of us, we've been following God for some time, and we know that phrase, that God loves us, we know it's an essential teaching in the Bible, but what does that actually look like? What, what does it feel like? How can I see it? What, what does it mean that God loves me? This passage that we're going to read in Philippians chapter 2 actually shows us, it describes, it tells us what Jesus' love for people really was. 
really was. And here's what God's love did. One of the fundamental teachings of the Bible is that there was this separation between human beings and the God who created them. Due to rebellion, due to pain, due to all the things, we experienced spiritual death over here. So we were dead. We just couldn't relate to God. The Old Testament is the saga of attempting to relate to God. The solution came. The way this chasm was bridged was through the love of Jesus. This love that we're going to read about had the power to come over to us. See, religion always teaches, this is the basics of religions throughout the world, teaches that if you could do enough, you could achieve God. You could bridge the chasm. It's through your meditation. It's through your efforts. It's through good works that you could bridge the chasm. The love of Jesus bridged the chasm, came to us, broken human beings, and reestablished relationship between God and human beings. And it was the love of Jesus specifically that did that. Now let's read together from Philippians chapter 2. Let's read about this love. It's radical nature. It's very challenging. Philippians 2. Therefore, Paul says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness or compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Now let's pause for just a moment. We know later in this book, Paul is going to address some of the separation and relational fallout that the church of Philippi is experiencing. There's people who are not getting along. There's people in their relationships at home. There's people in business relationships. There's people in the church who can't get along. And Paul is pleading with them. Do you, do you hear the earnestness? If, if God has made any difference in your life, he says, make my joy complete. You, you couldn't do anything to make me happier than finding a way to love. Now he's going to go on and describe this love, put meat on the bones. Do nothing, nothing, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, here's where we're going to really start looking at it. In humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but, to, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who? This is his love. Being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Perhaps the most horrific form of capital punishment any society had ever created. He became obedient to that. That was his love. This is a love, the love that we just read of. It healed a broken relationship. That same love, Paul is then urging followers of Jesus to have to adopt and to practice so that broken relationships could be healed. Let's look at just three of the big ideas out of this passage. Number one, Paul says, 
I want you to value others above yourselves. Value others above yourselves. Now, there's something in me that struggles with this because we as North Americans, we, I'm so grateful, we don't have at least not the same type of caste systems that other societies have, value systems where some people are intrinsically more valuable than others because of the family they were born into or the amount of money they make or their racial background. The Bible's clear that everybody has equal value, men, women, whatever our ethnicity, we're all God's children. But Paul says this, if you want to have a love like Jesus, a love that changes things, a love that heals things, a love that is radical in its nature, you've got to find a way to value others above yourselves. Instinctively, most of us value ourselves, value my time, my thoughts, my desires, my wants. Like those are important. Paul says, this is what Jesus did. It wasn't just about him. He valued us above himself. And in a relationship, this seems to go against, seems to go against what seems natural. He says, If you want to make these relationships work, begin to value others above yourself. Now, what does it mean to value people? You you pay attention. You defer. Uh, Later this week, Jay and I are going to go to once a year, our family churches has a gathering. And last year I went to this gathering. And I love love being with all these pastors, the training. But it is like four days of church services, morning, noon, night. And I happened to be in Los Angeles last year where, okay, if you don't like this, you can write, write a letter to Stan Simmons. Um, I was just kind of done going to church for seven hours a day, right? I, I'd, I'd been fed. And I found out, remember, I'm an 80s child, okay? Born in 71. I found out that the band U2 was playing in L.A. during the convention. So I played hooky one night, okay? Now, I have this long relationship with U2, a very conscientious band. So I show up. You like how I said that? I show up to the concert, and some of my friends have been there early. Apparently, I wasn't the only one playing hooky from the <laughs> pastor's conference. And one of my buddies, he comes up to me, and he is like, I've never seen him this elated. And he goes, come here, come here, come here, come here. Look at this. And he grabs his phone, and he has a picture of him and Bono, like embracing, like face to face. And I'm like, what in the world? He goes, well, I've been here for hours. He said, Bono has been walking around the Staples Center. This place holds 28,000 people, taking pictures with anybody who wants to take pictures with him. I'm like, are you serious? He's like, yeah. And so he goes, look, look, there he is. And I see this guy walking through the crowd, just taking pictures with people, and there's no bodyguards around him. I'm thinking, this is amazing. Now, pretty soon, word gets out that Bono is walking around the Staples Center, and everybody's attention is focused on this guy. He's got the Irish accent, the hairdo. I mean, it is, everybody's convinced it's Bono. But just to be frank, I have my doubts. I have my doubts, okay? And he's just being mobbed, just mobbed everywhere. And then it's time for the band to come out. The music starts to play, and Bono comes on stage. And this guy who's been working the crowd for two hours, okay, dead ringer, had it down perfect. You just saw everybody go, what? And they start booing this guy, just like, boo. You're like, you had us awful. For two hours, this guy was the most important person in the Staples Center. Okay, they just loved him. Everybody's looking at him, giving him attention. And then when the real Bono shows up, 
it changes like that, right? So there are these moments when you're in the presence of somebody who you, you consider very important, very influential, where you value them. That's what everybody in the crowd was doing. You value this guy. Paul says this. If you want to have an extraordinary love, a life-changing love, a love like Jesus' love, you begin to value people as if they were more valuable than you. That's not easy to do. There was a study by Dr. Ted Houston from the University of Texas. And he tried to figure out what made marriages happy. He took people who had been married for 13 years and reported a high level of satisfaction in their relationship. Okay, 13 years, high level of satisfaction. And they explored everything. They're trying to figure out what's the key to happiness. When it came down to it, these are the results of his study. He said, people who are very, very happy in marriage report, this is in your notes, something that he called benevolent distortion. Benevolent distortion or positive illusions. What does that mean? Distortion, I mean, that's, that's a word. It means something's not quite accurate. Benevolent means kindness. He said this, people who are really happy in their relationships, when they took a personality test, first for themselves and then for their spouse, they rated their spouse is very high in almost every category. They just, they just thought the world of their spouse. They valued them. They thought they were nicer than they actually were. And he says the key in his mind to marital happiness is this benevolent distortion where 13 years into marriage, I look at that person I married and I go, he's so cute. <laughs> She's so sweet. Makes me so, I love her. She's so great. And, and, and the researchers were befuddled. Like, why do you have this unrealistic expectation of your spouse? Because naturally what happens on the other end where there's not happiness, it's criticism, isn't it? There can be a distortion, but it's not benevolent. It's a distortion where you look at that person that you're called to love and you actually view them worse than they really are. I love that when Jesus looked at humanity, he valued us, all of our brokenness, all of the things in us that would seem to negate us from being recipients of God's love. And he still looked at us and he said, with all the things you've done, all the things you've said, all the mistakes you've made, I still value you as a daughter or as a son of God. You are worth my life, Jesus says. See, in every relationship, we go through this process. We have expectations, okay? Expectations. Uh, we talked a little bit last week. Sometimes our expectations are unhealthy. They're, 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 um, our, our way of thinking about relationships come through things other than Jesus. It's like, well, this is what the movies say it should be like. This is what books say it should be like. This is what poetry says it should be like. This is what TV says it should be like. So we have these expectations. And then between expectations and reality over here, okay, it's my response. I have a choice. So when someone doesn't meet my expectations, have you ever been in a relationship where someone just didn't meet your expectations? Like, I thought you would be nicer. I thought you would be more loving. I thought you would be more thoughtful. I thought you would be more respectful. Well, I have a choice to make. Will I look at that person and give them the benefit of the doubt? 
1 Corinthians 13, Paul, Paul knew this a long time ago. He said, love always hopes, love always believes, love always forgives. And my response, what will it be? Because my perspective on that person has to do with the choices I make. Well, I look at them and say, you know what? I'm going to believe the best. I'm going to value you. Even when you've disappointed me, I choose to value you. Jesus valued us even as we disappointed him, even as we turned our backs on him. This is a radical way of love, where you value other people. So whatever relationship that you are applying this to, can you look at that person and think, Jesus valued me in the midst of my imperfection, and I can value that person. If, if you've gone to the place where there's distortion of an unhealthy kind, can you just turn to the Lord and say, Lord, help me, help me to value this person. Renew my heart because I gravitate towards criticism and cynicism and thinking the best, but I want to value that person the way you value that person. Value others above yourselves. Secondly, Paul says this. Take interest, not just in your own world and the things you're interested in, but take interest in others. Take interest in others. Taking interest in the things that other people like, that your kids like, that your partner, you're married. What do they like? Find what they are interested in and move in that direction. Okay, find what they're interested in and move in that direction. And some of you right now, you're like groaning. Some of you guys are like, like shopping, like scrapbooking, like social engagements. I can't do it. Ladies, some of you are like, like grease and oil and engines and hunting. Jenny just reminded me last night. She, uh, she said, remember when I tried to go bow hunting with you one time? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it was, it was just like for her, she's like, this is so boring. I'm like, no, it's not. Shh, hold still, Psh, be quiet. And it was like, she, she just couldn't figure out why I enjoyed this whatsoever, right? Now, how do you take interest in what somebody else is involved in? Is you, you have to move that direction. It's very specific. And I know this is possible. I know this is possible because everybody did this while they were dating. Okay, like that second date, somebody said, oh yeah, I'm, I'm really into running. And you go, oh, me too. <laughs> and they said, oh, let's go running tomorrow. And you're like, okay. <laughs> and you're calling your friends like, do you have any running shoes I can borrow? <laughs> what, I gotta be sick because there's no way I can run. You're, like we all did that. We did that because we thought, I like that person. I want to be engaged in what they're involved in. Sometimes I am amazed, I'm not, not trying to criticize, but every now and then I'll ask somebody, I'll say, oh, well, what does your husband do? And they'll look at me and go like, eh, something to do with wires. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, I don't know, he works with wires. You should probably know what he's doing. What, is your, what does your wife do? Eh, she works at the hospital. What does she do? Is she a doctor? No. What is she? I don't know. No. Sick people. Something. Come on, let's find a way to like, what is interesting in life? In fact, I know this is true because when Jay and I started dating, we, we just grew up in different environments. And one of the things that she said she loved to do is play tennis. 
And she's like, you want to play tennis tomorrow? I'm like, sure. I've seen that on TV. Um, <laughs> let's play tennis. And I had no idea. This is a girl who like, qualified for state in high school, very good tennis player. And we get out there and like, I found a racket in my dad's garage, like a big wooden racket. I'm like, okay, here we go. Let's play tennis. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And the first time she really serves it, I, 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 like, I'm not trying to hit it back. I'm trying to protect my life. So it comes, and I'm like, Poof, and I miss it, and it hits me in the left eye. Just, I, it came so fast, I didn't even close my eye. It scratched my cornea, and I had to wear a patch over my eye. But I was game to play tennis because I liked the girl, right? Now, unfortunately, I don't play tennis with her all that much anymore. I probably should. On our, on our first anniversary, so th later in a few weeks, we'll, we'll celebrate 25 years, but our first anniversary, I thought, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to treat this girl so well. She'll never forget this anniversary. I love the mountain bike. And I said, honey, I've got this great mountain biking adventure planned for our first anniversary. And she was game. She's like, okay. So we start off, and the first part is climbing, this long climb, and there's switchbacks in the middle of a forest. And we go, there's a log that had fallen across the trail, and the trail crew had cut it. So it's just kind of, it's out here. And so I swerve around it, and as I'm going up the hill, I hear this, Ugh! and I look back, and, and Jenny, she wasn't impaled, thankfully, but she had found a way to hit that log in her gut like this, and she's hanging over the log, without her bicycle anymore. I'm like, what happened? She's like, I don't know. Well, look, so we get her down, we make it up the trail, and I'm thinking, this is the best anniversary ever. <laughs> and now, we've got maybe six miles down these gravel roads, and I've ridden this before, and it's all downhill from now, honey. This is gonna be great. And I just looked at her, and I said, don't even touch the brakes. Just let it go. I mean, you will fly down these logging roads. You're gonna love it. And she starts off, and I'm going to let her go first, right? So I, I, and, and I hear this, and she's holding the brakes, right, down the steep mountain. And so I follow her for a little bit, and I'm like, no, nah, I can't do this. So I go past her, and I go all the way to the bottom of the trailhead, and I'm waiting and waiting and waiting. So I start riding back up the hill, and before I see her, I hear this, and I see her walking her bike down. And she had tried to go fast, like I said, and crashed, right? And so on this gravel road, so she has like blood, all her hands, her knees, her elbows, and she's coming down the trail. Let me tell you what makes a great romantic first anniversary evening. It's when you don't have health insurance. And so <laughs> your job is to take tweezers and pick gravel out of your wife's hands and elbows and knees and just say, I love you so much. I'm sorry. I thought it would be fun. That wasn't really fun, was it? No. <laughs> what was I doing? You know, but the girl, she went with me. What happens later in life is we begin to drift a little bit and we develop our own interests and that creates separation. Somehow Jesus was interested in our world. He was interested in the plight of human beings. As Paul describes his love, he says, this is the type of love that changes realities, that heals brokenness, is when one person not only values another above themselves, but then moves in their direction.
says, I'll be interested in what you're interested in. Take interest in others. Thirdly, Paul says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to have the same mindset or the same attitude as Jesus. Jesus actually had a perspective, and Paul invites us in. He says, if you want to have this life-altering love different than what culture says love is, you've got to change your mindset. You've got to think differently. And here's what it looks like. He says, here's the attitude of Jesus. First of all, he made himself nothing. Nothing. In the original language, the phrase is, he emptied himself. The idea is this. It's the same word that would be used if you had a pitcher of water and you were going to fill cups at a dinner table. It's that kenosis. It means that you take that pitcher and you fill every cup until there's nothing left. that's, That's the exact same word imagery that Paul's using. Jesus, when he came to the planet, he didn't come for his benefit. He didn't get anything out of it. But instead, he emptied himself into the people that he loved. See, there's something in all of us, there's something as a human being, and specifically culturally, where we think of our life as maybe the same picture, but we're trying to fill it. I'm trying to fill it with experiences, with things that make me happy, with security. I'm trying to fill it with enough finances so that I don't have to be worried. And we spend our lives trying to fill our cup so that we feel good. And this is what Jesus did. He didn't come to fill his own cup. He came to self-empty, to pour everything out. And Paul says, if you can love that way, I know it's different. Most of us look at love as something to receive, something we experience, something that makes us feel better about life. But Paul says, that's not love. Love sacrifices. Love gives away. The same attitude as Jesus. Make yourself nothing. Second thing about his attitude is this. He says he humbled himself. He humbled himself. Literally means he subordinated his will. Rather than come with an agenda, like here's what I'm here to do. Here's what I need from you. He took his will and he subordinated it to us. He subordinated his will to the Father. He came for a mission. You you can read about the the night that Jesus is arrested. He knows what lies ahead of him. Remember, he, he became obedient even to death on a cross. He knows that he'll be executed by the Roman government in the most horrendous, horrific form of execution the world has ever invented. And so he's in this garden and he's praying. And he says, Father, if there is any other way, if there's any other way, please let this cup, let this experience pass from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Jesus himself had to find a way to say, I have a will. I would prefer not to die. I would prefer not to be tortured. If there's another way, if there's another expression of love that could heal human beings, I'd take it. But in the end, he realizes, this is the only way. So I subordinate my will. I humble myself. And I'll choose to honor my father. This is what he's asked me to do so that he can reach the people that he loves. In our culture today, we talk a lot about our rights. And I understand that. I appreciate the country we live in. 
We talk a lot about boundaries, and I understand that. There are relationships that are abusive and, 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 and painful and empty. I get that. But a lot of times we're so aware of my rights. I have a right to be loved. This isn't fair. I, I have a right to this. Let me give you a phrase. You can either have your rights or you can have an intimate relationship. You cannot have both. If you're going to have your rights, if it's going to be all about your rights and I need this, you will never experience an intimate relationship. The only way that the relationship between God and us was healed is that Jesus laid down his rights. He had every right to say, I don't deserve to die. He had every right to wipe out the planet. He had every right to do anything. He was innocent. He was blameless. But he laid down his rights, and that led to an intimate relationship between us and God. And in your relationship, particularly if you were married, you're very aware of your rights. I understand. But as long as you stand up for your rights, you will never experience this intimate relationship. It is the sacrifice that we read of. It is loving in a selfless way that creates an environment where healing can happen. It creates an environment where love can flourish. He humbled himself. And then lastly, as Paul describes Jesus' attitude, he says he took on the nature of a servant. The nature of a servant. It doesn't say he acted like a servant, but he took on the nature, the mindset of a servant, meaning this. In that society, there were certain people who, if you had um, spent in an uncontrollable fashion, you had debts that you couldn't pay back. The only way, nothing like bankruptcy existed. What you would do is you would be sold into servitude to pay off your debts. So if you had borrowed money from a lender and you couldn't pay that back, you had forfeited in your payments, you would then be sold into slavery to this lender so that you could pay off your debts. You're a servant or a slave. Paul says this. Here was Jesus' attitude. He took on the nature of a servant, meaning his way of thinking. A servant would do this. You would show up at the home, and you don't think about what's for dinner tonight. You don't think, hey, who's going to clean this place up? The servant, that's their job. The nature of a servant is I'm here to help. I'm here to serve. Nobody's here to do anything for me. And Paul says what Jesus did is he took on the nature of a servant. He began to look at the world in this way. What can I do to heal? What can I do to strengthen? What can I do to forgive? That's a different nature entirely because my normal nature, my sin nature is what can they do for me? They're a commodity. How can I get ahead? How do they make me feel? I'm at the center. Jesus took on the nature of a servant where everything perspective he's looking at is about what can I do to serve? to surrender. You know, there's this uncomfortable place in um, marriage vows. I know there's different types. And for the first time, maybe five years ago, I had a couple who said, eh, can we leave out some of that old-fashioned stuff? I said, well, what do you mean? Because the the, the vows I typically use, um, I'll serve you, I'll love you, I will place your interests above my own. 
They said, God, that just, you know, that sounds like kind of codependent and subservient. And I said, well, what do you want to put in there? Would you like to put in, I'll be good to you as long as you're good to me? What do you want to put in there? I'll make you happy if you make me happy? I said, listen, I'll do anything. You want me to do your wedding and we jump out of an airplane? Sure. You want me to hike to the top of a mountain? Sure. I'll do it. Elks Club, whatever. But I said, if you don't understand what you're getting into, that you're there to serve, you're there to lay down your life, and we've got a real problem. In conclusion, we think of marriage as a 50-50 prospect, okay? I do my 50%, you do your 50%. In reality, it has to be 100% 100%. Okay? Here's what this 50-50 scenario looks like. This is, listen, in order for marriage to be fair, okay, did you know every kid's always worried about what's fair? Right? It's not fair! I have some terrible news for you. Marriage is not fair. Life's not fair. Okay, but when we take that percent, that, that mentality into marriage, we think this, okay, marriage is 50-50. I do my 50%, and then you do your 50%, and all will be good. Okay. So what happens? Maybe, maybe the healthier partner says, well, I did my 50%. I'm not doing any more until they do their part. He said, I can't do this by myself. And you just sit around and you wait until you think that your partner has done their 50%. And then we'll move on. Do you know how many marriages are stalled and have not grown or progressed in decades, years, whatever it might be, because two people think, I've done everything that I should do. And now it's up to her. Now it's up to him. And they're just waiting. It's never going to work. It's never going to work. If I understand what Paul is saying here, if I understand what the Bible says about love, it's a 100% thing. The only way, listen, nobody's going to love perfectly. I get that. There's going to be pain. There's going to be mistakes. But if I say I'm 100% in, I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to value you more than I value myself. I'm going to have the attitude of Jesus Christ that I'm here as a servant that I'm going to humble myself, that I'm going to empty myself. That's 100%. And that is a beautiful thing. If you have two people who are not about their rights, but they're about saying, how can I love like Jesus loved? Because that's the real love. There is nothing more beautiful when you see two people who are saying, I'm not holding on to reserves. I'm not waiting for the other person. I choose to love in this radical way that Jesus describes. Is that difficult? Oh, yeah. It's so difficult that I think few people ever even try. But is it beautiful? If two people could love each other like that, this is what Jesus says. He says, the best thing for culture to look at and realize who I am is a good, healthy marriage where two people love each other in that hundred, hundred way. 
It's exactly, gives people a picture of how God loves human beings. It's sacrificial. It's not easy. It's not waiting. It's saying, I will love the way Jesus loved me. I will empty myself out. I'm not looking at you as a commodity to make me happy. I'm looking at you as someone to love in the sacrificial, giving, radical way. Will you pray with me? Father, I know that there are a lot of us in the room who are experiencing deep challenges in our relationships. And we read Philippians chapter 2 and we think, are you kidding me? Is that even possible? But if I love that way, won't I be taken advantage of? If I love that way, what's going to happen to me? I understand. There's no guarantee. But Jesus loved that way. He poured himself out. He emptied himself. He valued us. He moved towards us. Jesus, I pray that you would resurrect stagnant relationships in this room where we've been standing there waiting for the other person. Would we love like Jesus and keep moving forward? God, I pray that we would move towards others' interests. I pray that instead of looking at ourselves, as this is my attitude, is that I have rights and I have needs. I get that. But would we love like Jesus and say, I am here to serve, not to take. Lord, would you reorient our minds? Lord, would something happen? For those who are, who are not married in the room, I pray that you would do things so extraordinary within them that when it's time for them to be married, if that is your will, that that marriage would be so healthy, it would far exceed their expectations because it's based on a radical type of love. Lord, for those who are married, would you reinvigorate our perspective of love? In the name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen, amen, amen. Hey, thank you so much. I told you it was a challenging passage, right? Woo! Just give it a shot. Lay down your life. If you are beginning a relationship with Jesus, you have questions, I welcome you to stop by the Welcome Center out there. There's a, a rooted group. I'd love for you to get in. There's free Bibles. You can talk to somebody. If you need prayer for anything, there's people you can trust up front. Be the hands and feet of Jesus. Have a great week. Let him do something amazing through you. God bless.